This chapter, according to scholars, is the third longest chapter in the New Testament, which is the reason why it takes about seven minutes to read. It is the most prominent chapter, the most prominent text on the resurrection. So we are beginning today a series of messages on the resurrection. So the title is very simply, Jesus Rose from the Dead. I have two main points and two slides, one for each main point. The first point of our message is the fact of the resurrection. This is established here in verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8, the fact of the resurrection. It says in verse 5, And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. The fact of the resurrection. What Paul does in this first section, verses 5 through 8, is he establishes a list of witnesses. This is not a legend. It is not folklore. It is not mythology. It is a fact. Jesus truly did rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is widely witnessed. He doesn't list everyone who saw Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, that list uh, would be more than what could be provided to list the names of every single person. He doesn't know the names of all the people who saw Jesus risen from the dead, but he does provide a significant list. He says, Peter, then the 12, then over 500 brothers at once, then James, then all the apostles, and then himself, Paul. So he's providing specific names of people that the Corinthian believers can go talk to and say, wait, you really saw him? He's really alive? Oh, yes, he is. I saw him. I went to the tomb, and I saw the tomb was empty, and then I saw him there in person. I saw him alive and in the flesh. So Paul gives this list. This list of names is somewhat interesting. First off, it starts in verse 5. He was seen by Cephas, or by Peter. Peter. What's happening here? Why does he list Peter first? Well, we don't really know. We don't have a full description, or really much of any description, of why these names are given. But we do see a chronological order in these names. In the biblical account of the resurrection, Peter sees Jesus before the rest, before the rest of the, the, the other 12. And then the 12 see him before the 500 see him. And so there's this chronological sequence. The second thing to observe about this list in general is that this list contains overlap. So don't be tripped up. Don't be caught asking the wrong type of question that's not terribly important, such as, well, why does it say Peter, and then it says the 12, but Peter's part of the 12, and then it says James, and James is part of the 12 too, and then it says all the apostles, and the 12 are part of the apostles, and then the 12 are also part of the 500. What's up with that? And then you get stuck in this kind of death spiral of Bible study where you're just like hung up on the wrong details. That's common. 
It's easy. It's easy to do that. It's easy to have this question, but that question is not the main point. But rather, what Paul seems to be doing here is simply pointing to a few events, a few instances. There was the instance where Jesus appeared to Peter. And that happened before Jesus appeared to the twelve. And that happened before Jesus appeared to the 500. 500 brothers all at once. Now, you may be a brilliant Bible scholar and you're aware that this event of the 500 brothers is actually not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. Don't be caught off guard by that either. The Bible tells us that if everything that Jesus did was recorded in the Bible, the books of the world cannot contain the things that would be written. Then after Jesus appears to the 500, he appears to James. Who is James? Well, James is Jesus' brother. And the leader, or the lead pastor, as it were, of the church in Jerusalem. Then after he appears to James, then it says he appears to all the apostles. You might wonder what that's talking about, because it just referred to the 12, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. What's up with these all the apostles? Well, yeah, that's a reference to a bigger group a bigger group than the 12. I think it's a smaller group than the 500, but it's a different group. There are a few people described in the New Testament that are given uh, the title or the term apostle that are not the 12. I didn't list them here. I should have. Um, It's listed in most every commentary that will address this, and probably in your study Bible as well in the notes on this verse. It'll probably say, oh, there's a the reference in Galatians, and there's a reference in the book of Acts, and then there's one in some other book, uh, a Pauline epistle, that references these other people that are given the title of apostle. Well, yeah, that's that reference. That, that's what this is talking about. When Jesus appeared to these other people that are the sent ones that Jesus commissions to take his message to the world. And then after Jesus appears to the apostles, Then Jesus appears to Paul in particular. And that's the point that Paul is driving at. The point is not that we would get hung up and say, okay, now let me preach, pause and preach an entire sermon just about Jesus' appearance to Peter. And so we can make verse 5 into two sermons and verse 6 into its own sermon and then verse 7 into one or two sermons, and then verse eight into like six sermons. Like that's actually not expository preaching, and that's not really, I don't believe that's the way the Lord intends us to handle his word. But what Paul is driving at is this point, and that is his own encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and what was happening with that. There's something in particular going on. Verse eight, then last of all, he was seen by me also, by one born out of due time. That expression, born out of due time, is, um, I think, Nate, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a hapax legomena. It's a word that's only found one time in the Bible, possibly one time in all of Greek literature. Uh, It's a unique term that can be difficult to translate because you don't have it used in other places in order to discern its meaning. But this expression, as one born out of due time, I think that if you compare the other English translations, you will find they pretty much all just say, as one born out of due time. What does Paul mean by that? We're not really sure. So it must not be the main point then, if it's obscure and it's not something that we're able to discern. 
but he's driving at a certain point. Before we move further, let's dig in on this, the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection was widely witnessed. It was not a secret. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was not a secret. It was not hidden. It was not secret like the peddlers of false religions or those who tell Gnostic fables. It was not like those who say, oh, trust me, this really, really happened. You just have to take my word for it. Think of Joseph Smith's supposed revelations. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, or as they rebranding themselves, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS. Joseph Smith has these golden plates, and these golden plates have special writing on them. Trust me, it's real. Where are the plates? They're gone now. The angel Moroni took them back to heaven. You mean like in Joseph Smith's lifetime? Yeah, yeah. I, Joseph Smith, lost them. The angel took them. Well, tell me more about these plates. Well, these plates, they're written in a language called Reformed Egyptian, which would not be someone who could be a member of our church who's Egyptian. No, this is a special kind of language. By the way, Reformed Egyptian does not exist. It's not a real thing. This example of Joseph Smith, of this this make-believe fairy tale of saying, oh, well, there really were these plates in this made-up language, and this all really happened, trust me, but it was in some closed room where no one could see it. That's not the nature of Jesus' resurrection. But that's, Jesus' resurrection is like all the rest of his deeds. They're in the open, in public able to be verified, able to be uh, attested to. This is the reason why Paul says in verse 6 that um, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So when he's writing this at this time to the Corinthian Christians, he's saying, by the way, while I'm writing this, this note to you, these 500 people who are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, many of them are still alive. And they could testify that this is real. He really came back from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection, the fact of his resurrection was widely witnessed. It was not a secret. It was not in hiding. It wasn't made up. It wasn't false. This pattern of his resurrection being widely witnessed and widely attested to is the same pattern repeated in his resurrection, which was done in Jesus' life and earthly ministry. Jesus' life and earthly ministry is open. It's public. It is before scores of eyewitnesses. Remember when Peter says, remember what Peter says about this fact in his first epistle. Peter addresses the nature of Jesus' ministry in verse 16, 2 Peter 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The fact of the matter is, Jesus really did the things that he claimed to do, and he really rose from the dead. And there were countless eyewitnesses. And so we have point number one, the fact of the resurrection. Now let's consider point number two, the implications 
of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection. Let's read verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. What's happening here in these verses 9 through 11, Paul is referencing himself. It is not a sin to speak of the work that God has done in your life. It's not prideful to say that, no, Jesus saved me. And he saved me from the depths of my sin. Paul is saying that he was the least of the apostles, the worst of the worst. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Well, why is that? Because I persecuted the church. Think about this. In the course of biblical history, there are a number of key moments, the number of key instances in the narrative of biblical history, the story of um, the Lord creating the, the world and then uh, his people and then taking them out of Egypt and um, just through the wilderness, all, all sorts of things. There are a number of key instances Think about Pharaoh having the mother's babies killed, the firstborn children in Egypt. That was a key moment. Think about the various prophets. Think about the Israel's, uh, Israel's invasion when they were carried off into captivity. Imagine the Babylonians storming the city gates. These are key moments. Well, also a key moment is after Jesus' death and resurrection, there the church is established, the apostles are preaching and teaching, the church is birthed at Pentecost, and now there is this massive persecution, this wave of opposition. This is a key moment. Before the church is scattered, when they're still there in Jerusalem, they're, they're centralized in this one location. This is a very dangerous moment where, in theory, a well-organized army could come in and like, kill them all. And please remember that Fortress of Antonia was right next door to the temple. It was built to overlook the temple so that the Romans could keep an eye on the Jewish people. And remember that this Peter's sermon at Pentecost took place there in the temple, uh, the temple mount, the temple steps. So there's plenty of soldiers right nearby. And then who's Paul? Well, Paul is a religious leader, and he has a lot of authority and a lot of influence. His persecution against the church actually has the potential to cause far more damage than I think that we typically realize. Because this is a key moment and the key influence that he has and his authority and his ability to target the leaders of the church. You remember what happened with Stephen? Stephen, one of the seven deacons chosen to serve the church, one of the initial core leaders. And there is Saul approving of his execution. Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, was a very wicked man. And his rage, his hatred of Jesus, 
His persecution of Jesus overflowed in this violent attack, this violent assault on the church. And so his attack on the church is what he's referencing here in verse 9. I persecuted the church of God. The reason that I'm a Christian today is not because I was a good guy. I was the chief of sinners. I was the church's strongest, most violent enemy, persecuting the church, taking out the leaders of the church like a sniper who's up in a very far removed position, looking out over the field, seeing the generals and shooting them from a mile away. They they can't even hear the gunshot that took them out. That's his approach. And he's going after more than just one or two. So what is being referenced here is the the implications of the resurrection. Something happened in Paul's life to turn him from being a murderous leader of the prosecution and persecution of the church to transform him from that to being one who would be the foremost apostle who is proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and establishing the church and then suffering for the gospel the same way that others had suffered under his sword. Something happened to cause that transformation. And what that thing was that happened was his conversion, namely his own resurrection. He was raised from the dead. See, he was dead in his trespasses. He was dead in his sins. He was dead in his law-keeping lawlessness. But he was then raised from the dead. The grace of God appeared to him. Verse 10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, but it wasn't me, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The only way that the worst sinner who ever lived could be transformed to the apostle that the Lord most greatly used to establish the church is because the resurrection is true and because Jesus is truly alive. If Jesus did not truly rise from the dead, then Paul would still be the guy we call Saul. Now, for you linguists at home, you know that his name didn't actually change. It's just Saul and Paul, both one being like the Latin and then the Greek or something to that effect. But nevertheless, the change in his name functions in that way for us to see the change in his life in the book of Acts, where you see him functioning as the pre-converted Saul and then the converted Paul. The only way that Paul be transformed is because Jesus is truly alive. Because that's where Paul got his new life from. Hopefully some of you know the song, To God Be the Glory. The lyrics, one of the verses says, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment From Jesus, a pardon receives. The vilest offender. 
the vilest offender. I addressed this last week, but our temptation is often to think that that Jesus can only save people with sins up to a certain point. And that if you've done certain things, then you're beyond hope. That is not the case. If Jesus could save Saul of Tarsus, he could save you. Further, as we consider the implications of the resurrection, we must acknowledge that the resurrection is the portal through which the grace of Jesus' substitutionary atonement flows. Now, I'm sure you got that the first time, but in case you didn't get that the first time, let me reread that. The resurrection is the portal through which the grace of Jesus' substitutionary atonement flows. So let's break that down. The grace of Jesus. How do we get the grace of Jesus? Well, we get the grace of Jesus because he died for us. We call that the atonement. In particular, we call that the substitutionary atonement. Now, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, and because of that, this grace flows out. But that's not all. Further, that's not enough. Because if Jesus dies on the cross and stays dead, then his death is of no help. Which means if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no salvation, no hope, no life, and no forgiveness. Therefore, the resurrection is necessary. The resurrection is necessary to open the door for this floodgate that all may go in that the song to God be the glory writes about. So the resurrection is the portal through which the grace of Jesus' substitutionary atonement flows. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the grace that he purchased in his death isn't coming to you. There is no grace if he dies and stays dead. Because, my next one-liner is, substitution without resurrection means defeat. Substitution without resurrection means defeat. So think with me. Imagine that someone takes your place. And that's great. Someone took your place. But they failed on your behalf. Brief baseball illustration, then we'll get into my real illustration. Last night, the Rays were playing against Toronto, and it was 5-5 to in like the 10th inning or something. Uh, tie ball game, the Rays have already secured their postseason. Toronto has not yet secured, and I think it's the second-to-last game of the season. So this game counts because Toronto's elimination number is like one. So they have to win one more game in order to make it to the postseason. If they lose and Seattle wins, then there's yet another game that must be played in order to make it. So the Rays have no pressure, but Toronto has a lot of pressure. Tie ball game extra innings, bases loaded, Yandy Diaz is up to, up to bat. He is currently tied for first place for the batting title. Uh, they put him in to pinch hit for someone because the guy who was supposed to hit is not doing so good. So they pinch hit Yandy, who is resting because this game doesn't matter. So they put him in. Best possible hitter that could be brought in outside of Corey Seager from, from uh, Texas because he's the second best hitter or tied for the first in all of baseball. This is the substitute you want. But unfortunately, he's facing Jordan Hicks, who throws 103 miles an hour. Jordan Hicks struck him out on three pitches. 
I don't think any of the three were strikes either, if I remember right. I don't, but that's beside the point. Yandi Diaz is put in as a substitute, and then he fails. Thankfully, the next guy succeeded, and the Rays ended up winning. But that's all beside the point. Imagine that someone takes your place, and then they fail on your behalf. That's disappointing. Think of the ba- bill payment illustration from last week. We talked about like the restaurant situation where you and like four friends are at a restaurant, and someone pays for the bill. What that means is no one else has to pay because they paid. Well, imagine you're back at the restaurant, but before you walk in, this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I looked at my friend. He's like, hey, let's, let's go get breakfast. I said, okay, oh, I don't have my wallet. And I'm not sure if this place takes Apple Pay. And he says, oh, that's fine. I got it. So before you walk in, you tell your friend, hey, I don't have my wallet with me. And your friend says, don't worry about it. I got it. So you have this agreement up front. He's going to pay. Then when it comes time to pay, your friend hands his card to the waitress who comes up to the table with one of those little portable payment machines. So he hands his card to the waitress who inserts it into the payment processor and it says, card denied. And it makes a sound just like that. She tries it again, and it goes, card denied. Same result. And your friend says, no, no worries, I got got more. So he pulls out a different card, confidently, and says, here, try this. She puts it in, and it goes, card denied. Your friend does this with every card in his wallet. They're all denied. Neither of you have cash on you. And for whatever reason, the little payment processor is from 1995 and doesn't take Apple Pay. So you say, great, what are we going to do? You think to yourself that you depended on him to make the payment. And he doesn't have the ability to deliver on his promise. So this man took your place, he's standing in your place, and he failed. Now, let's take the illustration a step further, because every illustration has its point where you can go no further, and it's kind of a faulty illustration, but let's press this just a little bit further. Now, let's say you ask to see his cards. Hey, do you mind if I see those? So he slides his stack of eight cards across the table, and you look at them, and you find that every single one of his cards are expired. Every last one of them are expired. It's not that he's broke. It's that he hasn't checked his mail in forever. And all of these cards, like they they send you a new one because they want you to keep using their card. That's how credit cards make money. So every last one of his cards are dead. They're all dead. So the man took your place with his dead cards. Thanks a lot. How much does that help you? Not at all. Substitution without resurrection means defeat. Substitution without life means defeat. If Jesus took your place but didn't rise from the dead, then you are no better off than if you were left on your own, paying your own sin debt. Like, suppose you're at the restaurant and your guy's like, oh, I don't have any cards. And you're like, thanks a lot. I didn't have any either. I could be in this position without your help. Mr. No Money. 
If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but he took our place, then we're no better off than without him in the first place. So we must consider subpoint D, substitutionary resurrection. If you're like trying to take notes and you lost a few of these, my first subpoint was about the only way Paul could be transformed from being the worst persecutor of the church to being the apostle of the church is that the resurrection is true. And then secondly, the resurrection is the portal at that point. Thirdly, substitutionary without resurrection means defeat. Fourth subpoint is this uh, is the substitutionary resurrection. Jesus not only died for us, dying in our place, but he also rose for us. You see, when Jesus rose, he rose in victory. When he rose, he conquered sin and death. And he rose in our place through this doctrine which we referenced last week, which is this union with Christ. See, when we are in him, when we are in his place, he is in our place, he he substitutes for us, he not only dies for our sins, but he also rises for us too. His death is our death, his life is our life. And so his resurrection not only means his victory, but his resurrection means our resurrection, and our resurrection means our victory. So you consider your friends that are not Christians that you interact with and you observe them living this life as though this life is all that there is. And they try to twist your arm or drag you into doing the things that they're going to do that you know would not be honoring to God. And they're like, well, you only live once. Well, what happens at the end of the age is there is this uh, surprise, you jokers. This life isn't all that there is. After we die, we will live again. This matters. Because I don't know about you, but there's there's just a lot of times when I'm observing things. I just kind of go around the city and you see like, wow, all these people are living as if this is all there is. And, and that's true. They are living as if this is all there is. But this isn't all there is. So let me ask you, do you, find, do you ever find yourself frustrated? Because you're like, hey, I, I, I believe in Jesus and I even love Jesus. But after a while, it kind of gets old, you know? Not Jesus, but like all the self-denial or all of the things, like, like everybody's just living like a normal person and then there's me not doing the things that they're doing and then they make fun of me and this goes on week after week, year after year, decade after decade. And it kind of grates on you after a while. I'm sure that you don't resonate with that, but at least um, one or two people in this room do. Well, remember that this life isn't all that there is. We're going to connect back into this point here in a second, but moving forward, beyond substitutionary resurrection, there is also resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. And the hope of the resurrection is restoration. 
Remember these words from Job 19. Job 19, 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though my body be destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Most all credible Bible scholars believe that the book of Job was the first book of the Bible written. It's like when Moses is penning the Pentateuch, the book of Job is already there as the meta-narrative of Scripture, as the meta-narrative of this religion that is being rolled out, that of the righteous sufferer. And he already has confidence in a future bodily resurrection. That after he dies, after his body is eaten by worms, he will be resurrected and he will see his Redeemer face to face. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he, my Redeemer, shall stand on the earth on the latter day. And though my body be destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. The only way that's going to happen is if there is truly a resurrection. Now, hopefully, that's some hope for you who have physical illnesses. That one day, your body will be restored. That Tim Salyer's knees will be better. Alex K's cancer will be fully and finally healed. Before we move on, though, let's remember who is writing these words that I've just been talking about. It's this guy named Job. Job was a guy who suffered significantly. He was a man who lost everything. And the only thing he didn't lose was probably the one thing he would have wanted to lose, which was his miserable, nagging wife. So he's losing all of the good things in his life and what is present throughout all of it is his wife saying, just curse God and die. Turn against God too while you're at it. And he's just like, oh. Insert some Yiddish here. So his body is being destroyed. By the assault of Satan. And he has this confidence that even though his body be destroyed, like he, he's, he's literally taking pieces of pottery to cut himself to scrape his wounds because that is less painful than the pain of the sores that are eating up his skin. So for Job, remembering that his Redeemer lives, his Savior lives, and that his Savior will stand physically, truly. This is not just theory. This is not just faith. This will be real. It's not just a spiritual, mystical life. But Jesus will truly live on the earth, his feet standing on the dirt, and that Job himself will in his flesh, be restored, his body will be restored, and he will see God with his eyeballs. This promise, this assurance, steadies Job in the face of unspeakable 
suffering, and this steadies us in the face of hardship, the type of hardship that there is no healing from in this life. Think about those lifelong sorrows that only you know about. Those lifelong sorrows will be healed in the resurrection. For you who are struggling to believe, you who are struggling to hang on, you feel as from from day to day, like, I'm not sure I can make it through tomorrow, still being a Christian, because I am so shaken by these circumstances. If that's you, and your confidence has been shaken, and you've begun to doubt, you've begun to doubt that even the joys to come are better than the pleasures lost, to you I would remind of the psalmist who wrestled with the same question from Psalm 73, which is what I alluded to in the previous point. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. This is the place to start. In experiences of suffering, to remember that God is good to his people. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they had no pain until death. So it seems. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as their garments. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. These are those people that are really exceptionally wicked. And you look at them and all you see is their prosperity and you are wondering why that is. And you're wrestling with God saying, God, I made all these sacrifices for you. I decided to live for Jesus in my 20s instead of living for the world and living for the flesh and living for the devil in my 20s. I made all these sacrifices and it's not turned out the way my youth pastor told me it would. What's up with that? They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, how to make sense of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was exhausting to think about the prosperity of the wicked and the the seeming futility of the righteous. But then verse 17 says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. 
Having this perspective, taking a moment to step back and to consider the reality of the resurrection, that gives us perspective. That Jesus did rise. And as I said earlier for the... uh, for you jokers out there, that this life is not all there is. By way of illustration, much of parenting, now that I have my child is one, so I'm like obviously an expert on this. Um, parenting, much of parenting revolves around these concepts. And our son is very much at this stage where he has no concept of the sequence of events, he has no concept of time. And he has no context whatsoever. So when you, as his parent, walk out of the room, he thinks he is never going to see you again. Like, it's over. And he begins to cry, to scream, and to try to follow you. Like, no, don't leave me. You're leaving me. He thinks he's never going to see you again, and the world world is truly going to end with him sitting alone in an abandoned apartment building on the 12th floor with no ability to get food or water or to even reach the doorknob. I tried this morning with him. I I tried to help him reach the doorknob, and he came up about this this short. (laughs) And he likes to jump, but he can't actually jump. He hasn't developed that skill yet. So when he sees you walk out of the room, he thinks, especially, let's say that his mother is out of the room, let's say that she's at the gym. And so now it's father-son time. And for whatever reason, I decided to, I don't know, make breakfast or something. And at the end of heating up whatever I'm heating up, I look at the box and like, let's throw this away. So for those who know how things are in our apartment, they know that the, the big trash is in the hallway. It's from here to the organ away from the door. Like, it's, it's super close. So I don't want to put a big cardboard thing in the trash in the kitchen because it's going to fill up the trash bag sooner than it needs to. And there's the cardboard recycling bin about this far away from the door. So what do I do? I throw the box away. So I step out into the hall, and no sooner does the door close behind me, but I've already made it to the trash can. As I hear the door slam, then I also hear a blood-curdling scream. Because my son thinks this is over. He's going to die alone in this apartment, completely abandoned, with no food or water, and no ability to even reach the doorknob, because he's too short. Never mind the fact that this this ritual has happened like a hundred times before, and it always worked out just fine. So he has no concept of time, no concept of patience, or of uh, understanding the sequence of things, or delayed gratification. Now, I would like to gently suggest today, and for those who know me well, please bear bear with me in the seeming hypocrisy of this, but I'm going to gently suggest today that much of our own angst, in the face of genuine, significant suffering, is because we often forget the promises of God the same kind of way that my son often forgets the reality of his relationship with his father, that his father is coming back and he will be back within the next five seconds and it's okay, we don't have to scream just yet. 
But we, much of our angst often comes because we lose our perspective as well. We lose our framework for the nature of reality, i.e. the nature, the reality of the resurrection. That, yeah, this circumstance is exponentially worse than a one-year-old who's left in his apartment for eight seconds by himself. We are experiencing something that is genuinely horrific. But there is life to come. And if this life, like, uh, was it Isaac who said, or Abraham, I don't remember, but he says, few and miserable have been my days. Suppose that that's true. I don't want to diminish that. But I think that much of our angst in those genuine, significant sufferings is because we've forgotten the basic premise of this entire message today, which is that Jesus truly is risen from the dead. So you who suffer, you whose only consistent coping mechanism is longing for the day when your agony is over, whether that is agony of body or of mind or of soul, that day when that suffering is over and that's your only significant, consistent comfort, I have this word of comfort to offer. To you who are in Christ, One day your suffering will end, and you will receive a glorified body. Every bit of physical pain that you constantly suffer with in this life, every bit of that pain will be removed. It will be cured. It will be healed. The Lord himself will wipe away every tear. Perhaps it's not physical pain, but you who suffer with mental distress, you will likewise receive full relief from that someday. As will your spiritual distress, that ache in your soul that is not going away on this side of eternity. No matter how much you pray, it's not going away. Your spiritual distress and despair the ache in your heart that has no cure on this side of eternity will one day find sweet relief in the warmth and the presence of your Savior. And all of this is for one reason. The one reason is that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to shape our perspective to filter all of our life's experience through this reality that our Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. And though our bodies be destroyed in our flesh, we shall see God upon the earth. Hallelujah. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.